0: Good morning! This morning we start our new series in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 1 reads like this, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Many of us could use some good news right now, right? Christmas is over, it's time to pack it up, it's time to put it away, it's time to get our heads out of the clouds, take a deep breath, brace ourselves... For whatever 2021 has for us. And boy, we've had enough of 2020, right? And we're ready to move into 21, and we are hoping desperately that 2021 is a little bit better than 2020. We're ready for some good news. And we're all familiar with that iconic movie scene of a man or a woman wandering through the desert. Clothes are, are tattered and torn. Lips are cracked, sun scorched skin, shoulders drooping, each and every step just an agonizing plunge into the burning sand. Maybe you feel a bit like that right now. Maybe you're beginning to ask yourself wilderness type questions like, How much longer can I go on? When will relief come? Is there, is there something that I'm missing that would, that would help me get through this a little bit easier than the way I'm getting through it right now? Maybe you're asking what God is doing. Does he even care? Should I expect him to help or should I just grit my teeth and be prepared to bear it? As we enter into this new, season, this new series, I'd like us to look at three individuals who spent time in the desert and lead us to see that hope rises from the wilderness. There was a man whose name was Mark. Actually, Mark was his Greek name. His Jewish name was John. Some refer to him as John Mark. Who was Mark? Well, let's see what the Bible has to say. He was the son of a believing mother. She used her house for prayer meetings. In Acts 12, 12, Peter... uh, went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Christians were gathering together in John's in Mark's home, and they were praying and his mother seemed to be leading this prayer meeting. Uh, In Acts 12, 25, we find out something else about Mark. He was the companion of Barnabas and Paul on a missionary journey. It says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Then in 1313, we find out something else. We find out for some reason, Mark leaves Paul in Perga and travels alone, apparently alone, to Jerusalem. It says this, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we have every reason to assume that Mark was a lot like a church kid. You know the type, right? He was one of those kids who grew up in a home where his parents were Christian, and maybe he thought he was going to use his life to do something really big for God. That is, until traveling with Paul, he began to realize that maybe this isn't such a glorious calling as I had envisioned. Maybe maybe it got a little too tough, or maybe it was a little too inconvenient, or maybe it was just more uncomfortable than he thought it was going to be. Whatever the reason, Mark apparently decided to give up. I've had enough. It was a good dream. It was a great idea. But I think, I, I think I'm think i done here. Mark, from, from what we know, Mark failed. And his failure was not without repercussions. When Paul was preparing to go visit some people who had come to know Christ on a previous trip, he insists... He insists that Barnabas not bring Mark. We find that out in Acts 15 where it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them One who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Who was right? And who was wrong? Well, Paul confronts the wrong that had been done. He confronts Mark and, and Barnabas and says, No, Mark can't come. Look, he, he left us. Barnabas, on the other hand, chooses instead to show grace to Mark. Who was right? I don't know. Maybe both. Imagine how Mark must have felt when he came to know that these two Christian leaders were now arguing over him, over something that he had done. Imagine how he felt when he found out that he was the one that broke up this team. must have felt terrible. Have you ever felt like a failure? I have. Maybe you let yourself down. Maybe you let others down. They were counting on you. They thought the world of you, and you sent their world crashing to the floor with a decision that you made. We don't like failure, do we? Especially when it's our own. Failure is often followed by shame, by regret, by questions. Questions about our value or our significance. Or, or perhaps even of whether or not it would have been better if we were even around in the first place. You and I know what it's like to experience failure, don't we? It can be a lonely place. It can be an empty place. It feels like we've fallen into a wilderness, a valley of the shadow of death. A man by the name of Thomas Wayne, no relation to Guy Wayne, asked his son Bruce in a 2005 film, Why do we fall, Bruce? He answers his own question by saying, So that we can learn to pick ourselves back up. Everyone knows that when Batman falls, he's going to find a way to get himself back up, right? He always does it in every single film, in every single comic. But in real life, things aren't that certain, are they? We're not Batman. Is there hope for those who have failed? Those of us who have failed in our Christian life, is there hope for us? Even in the midst of the disagreement and disruption, God was working in Mark's life. He hadn't given up on him. In fact, God was going to use him to put pen to paper and proclaim to generation after generation of God's plan from before the foundation of the world for the hope that was going to rise from the wilderness. At some point, there was healing between Paul and Mark. And that relationship, Second Timothy 4.11 says, Luke alone is with me. Paul's writing, Luke alone is with me. And he says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Is that redemption? I think so. At the end of First Peter, well, Peter is giving his closing greetings. He refers to Mark as his son. And of course, Mark wasn't Peter's son, not by blood anyway, but the relationship that they had was so close, Peter considered him his son in the Lord. 1 Peter five thirteen. she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. If you've experienced failure in your life, perhaps like God did in Mark's life, he might do so in your own. There's hope. If it's true that God is completely sovereign, then it's also true that he has allowed that failure in your life. That doesn't mean that you're not responsible for it, but it does mean that he has a purpose for it. Remember Genesis 5 20, Joseph said to his brothers in the wake of their monumental failure, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me. Yes, it's true. You were in the wrong. You failed. You really made a big mistake. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Your time in the wilderness... It might be the result of your own failure. But that doesn't mean that God does not have plans to use it. Or maybe use you for his glory. Mark went on to record Peter's account of the gospel of Jesus. He, his words are a testimony for ages and ages of the good news of Jesus Christ. His witness continues to this day. God is using the work that Mark accomplished in this book. And we're going to receive from that as we continue in our series. That is incredible. We've got to remember though. That there was failure in Mark's past. Those of us who have have failed, we need to remember that Christ came to raise us from our wildernesses. He came to redeem the worst things that we have ever done. Jesus Christ is our one and only hope, and hope rises from the wilderness. Isn't that good? Let's look what Mark had to write. The way for Jesus was paved in the wilderness. Mark begins like this. Mark chapter 1 verse two says, or verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will, rep- who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's life, John the Baptist, John's life was not an easy one. His clothing, a bit unorthodox. His diet, a little out of the ordinary. The work that he did, he did in the wilderness. It was a hard place. It was an uncomfortable place. It was a place free from the hustle and bustle of the city. A place where an uncomfortable message could not only be heard, but meditated on, thought about, taken to heart. It's often in those uncomfortable moments, those places of life in which God is there and he's speaking to us. It's where we wrestle with those tough questions and consider uncomfortable changes, isn't it? Out of the wilderness, John was to prepare the way for God's promised one. Out of the wilderness, he called people to a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Jewish practice, when a Gentile would convert Convert to Judaism, baptism was a rite in which they showed their rejection of paganism and their old life and their embrace of faith in the one true God. It was a really big deal. It was a dramatic turnaround. What John was doing about 25 miles south of the Sea of Galilee here in the Jordan River What he was doing was far more radical than that. John was preparing the way for the promised Messiah. And he was doing that by calling people who already believed themselves to be saved simply because of the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Maybe they were careful observers of God's law. And he's calling these people, not the Gentiles, not the people who are out there worshiping all sorts of different pagan gods. No, he's talking to God's people. He's talking to the Jews. And he's telling them, asking them, pleading with them to consider themselves in just as much need of change and forgiveness as any other pagan. Now, that's radical. That is, that's shocking. That was a message that would have been disturbing to some. The people were turning out in droves to listen to John, and those people they needed a turnaround. They needed a turnaround. They needed to see that their lives were not nearly as good or as moral as they thought themselves to be. They needed a Savior. They needed the one who was mightier than John to not simply baptize them with water, as John was doing, but actually supernaturally baptize their hearts through the Holy Spirit. And John was able to take care of of the cleansing on the outside. What they needed was a cleansing on the inside. Jesus would later say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will see God. No one there listening to John was unaware of how God had purified the people of Israel in the wilderness before leading them into the promised land. Now John is calling them back into the wilderness. You need to go back into the wilderness, back to the place of self-examination and even judgment, back to a place where coming to God meant exchanging your pride And taking on humility. And exchanging rebellion for obedience. The people needed to go back to the wilderness. Isn't it true that until you experience a kind of wilderness inside, your heart is not prepared to trust in Jesus? It's true, isn't it? You need to be confronted, you and I need to be confronted with the reality of our own sin. Our need for forgiveness. And then and only then are we ready to embrace the Savior for who he is. Well, if that's true, then could it be that the wilderness that you find yourself in, maybe even right now, maybe God is using that wilderness to lead you, to bring you to himself. If you've not come yet to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, perhaps God is allowing this wilderness moment that you find yourself in right now to open your eyes to the fact that you need Jesus. And if you're there and your eyes are opening up, would you trust him? And would you confess your sin before him? And look to the cross where He paid for every single one of your sins that you might be washed clean and forgiven. And would you trust in that? Would you make Him your Savior and make Him your Lord? If you already know Jesus, maybe God is using this time, this wilderness time, to bring you to a a deeper reliance on Him or a deeper knowledge of Him. Or perhaps it's to bring about some type of refinement in you. Maybe there's some sin in your life that you've been tolerating or you've been ignoring. And He's using this time to wake you up and bring you to repentance. How is God using this wilderness in your life? Right now, God often uses the wildernesses of our lives to pave the way for us to come to Jesus. Hope rises from the wilderness. We've looked briefly at Mark, we've looked at John. Now let's look at Jesus. Let's look at the source of hope. Mark 1 9 says this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was a man from nowhere, from nowhere. That's exactly where Nazareth was. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was nowhere. And that's why Mark has to tell us what region it was in. Nazareth was such an insignificant village that it isn't even mentioned in any of the ancient Jewish writings. At least not from the first century. It was a wilderness in and of itself. It was on the outskirts. It was one of the last places any Jew looking for the coming Messiah, God's anointed one, is the last place they would have looked. When Jesus showed up to be baptized, it didn't make any sense to John. John knew that Jesus didn't have any sins to repent of, no wrong to be cleansed of. Why would Jesus need to get dunked in the water? It doesn't make any sense. In fact, Matthew records John objecting to Jesus' request. Matthew writes, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John knew that if anyone was to get baptized, it should have been John, by Jesus. And here Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to baptize me. Why is that? Jesus needed to be baptized because he was sent to be our perfect representative. He was sent to perfectly follow God's will for people. And so, as he was baptized, he identifies with the ones that he came to stand in for at the cross. As he did, God the Father put the stamp of approval on him by affirming who he was. And as the Spirit descended down upon him like a dove, God said, Yes, this is the one. This is my anointed one. This is my Son. In whom I am well pleased. This is an incredible moment in, in, in God's Word. In one place, we th- see all three persons of the Godhead present and interacting in one moment here. And why not? This was a momentous occasion. This was the affirmation and installation of God's perfect plan that was formed. From before the foundation of the world. Jesus walked on earth for some 30 years. And now was the time for action. The green light was given. And now it was time to begin. A stranger. A man from nowhere. Had stepped out from the crowd. And was singled out. This was no ordinary man. This was God's servant. The anointed one. Now we might expect after an event like this that the crowds would have been rather impressed. They would have been buzzing. Questions would have been asked. People from all over everywhere would have been stretching their necks, trying to get a better look, maybe even pushing in, actually trying to meet this man. This could have been a momentous occasion, the beginning of a movement here. But the very next thing Mark tells us is that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him, Mark 1, 12 to 13 says. Jesus identified with sinners when he went down into the water. Now he would endure the same challenges and temptations that they face. Up until this point, every single soul before him had succumbed to temptation. How would Jesus fare? How was he going to do? How was the anointed son in whom God was well pleased going to stand up to temptation? Notice it says here that the spirit, God's Holy Spirit, drove him out into the wilderness. That same spirit, moments earlier, it descended on him, right? It marked him as God's anointed. Now it's driving him away from the crowds, away from food, away from shelter, out into the Jordan desert. I've read, uh, one commentator writes, that was a dusty, desolate, and dangerous landscape broken up by rocky peaks, craggy cliffs, and plunging ravines. It was a wilderness. And there in the wilderness, God would show off his son's righteousness. He would show that it's vastly superior to everyone who had gone before him. Though he was starving, though he was weak, though he was threatened by wild animals, and though he was tempted to instantaneously defy defy the Father's plan and put an end to it all, to even avoid the agony that, that was coming, the agony of the cross. In the midst of all of that, Jesus stood his ground. Where we would have faltered, he remained faithful. Where we would have doubted, he continued to trust. Where we would have cursed, he spoke only what is true. And where we would have compromised, he perfectly obeyed. No doubt, at some point in those 40 long days, Jesus repeated to himself the words of David. No doubt in my mind. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The wilderness seems to be a common place for those whom God calls into service. Remember... The years Moses spent in the wilderness before leading God's people out of Egypt. Remember the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness of God's people before entering the promised land. Remember the 15 years of running from that maniac king that David had to do before he took his place on the throne. Hope rises from the wilderness. Mark 14 says, Now, after John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It begins. And from there, Mark records what happened next. In 16 to 20, Jesus is walking along and he calls to some fishermen. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee and he says, Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And immediately we read Simon and Andrew follow Jesus, followed by James and John. They drop their nets, they walk away from their livelihoods, and they follow him. It's happening. 21 to 28. Jesus astonished everyone with his authoritative teaching in the synagogue. All of a sudden, a man possessed by demons, by an unclean spirit, begins to cry out, causing a big ruckus. And Jesus simply says, be silent. Come out of him. And everyone looked with amazement as the man convulses, throws himself on the floor, crying out. And all of a sudden becomes calm and was in his right mind. 29:34 Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. She had a bad fever. She doesn't gradually get better here. No, she immediately gets better and she begins serving them as if she was never sick at all. And that's followed by the whole city now gathering at the door bringing their sick to be healed. In 35 through 39 after spending some time alone in prayer, Jesus begins a preaching tour throughout Galilee. The ministry is happening. 40 to 45, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And he tells him, say nothing to anyone. But the man, he just can't contain himself. And he goes out and he tells everyone. Everyone that he knows that Jesus had changed his life. And now Jesus can't even walk into town. Absolutely bombarded. People coming at him from every angle. We read in verse 45, what did Jesus do? He went out into the wilderness, into the desolate places, it says. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Hope was rising. Hope was rising. The one who was with God. And was God, the one who God sent into the world to take on flesh and take away the sins of the world, had come to town and was causing quite a stir. But let's not forget where it began it began in the wilderness. You find yourself in a wilderness. I feel like I'm in a wilderness. Your wilderness may not be a literal desert. of, of testing. They take many different shapes, many different sizes, and they go on for different lengths of time. Whatever your wilderness, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. God has not abandoned you. In fact, it may be that he's actually preparing you for service that is far more significant than you have ever dreamed. I served under a pastor who, late in his life, was led into the wilderness. It came when his wife, who is an incredible lady, ministered to my wife in a powerful way. It came when she was diagnosed with cancer. And in order to care for her In a time that was bound to be extremely difficult, he retired early from the ministry. The months ahead were hard, very hard in fact. He expected the pain that was going to come as his wife deteriorated more and more. But what he had not foreseen was the horror that was on the way. The horror that would come when, for various reasons, people whom he had poured himself into for 25 years at the church where he had served all of a sudden began turning on him. It was a devastating season in his life. I remember how strange it was to look at him and see the emptiness in his eyes. I remember being there at the funeral. I remember after we buried his wife, and after he had seen the ministry that he had spent so many years of his life building up, falling apart, crumbling. I remember seeing him in a, in a, in a place where, a place of desolation, a place of wandering. What was it all for wasn't so much the question he was asking as was what do I do now? What do I do now? And there I was sitting across the table from him at a a small restaurant, San Juan Capistrano. I was sitting across from a pastor who had helped me find so much purpose in my life and realizing he no longer had any himself. It was a wilderness. But from the wilderness, hope rises. Neither of us on that day had any idea how God would use that season to prepare him for what was next. Neither of us had ever dreamed that God was pulling, out of, pulling him out of one ministry to a small local church and preparing him now for a global ministry. After leading him through an excruciating journey through the wilderness, God used him to establish a ministry that trains up pastors and church leaders in four countries now, in the Philippines, in Haiti, in Peru, and even in China. Maybe you find yourself in one of those wilderness moments. Maybe it's because of all that's going on in the world. Times are tough. You find yourself caught in the middle of something God is doing as he unfolds his plan and brings us closer and closer to the day of Christ's return. And you're just trying to get through it. It feels like a wilderness right now. But maybe, maybe you're at fault. Maybe the wilderness that you are in right now was brought on by a bad decision that you made and now you, found yourself, you find yourself in the wake of your own failure. Maybe your wilderness is God's way of calling you back to himself. Maybe he's calling you to trust him. Maybe it's for the first time. Or maybe he's, finally, he's telling you to finally get serious and turn away from some sinful habits that you've allowed into your life. They've been lingering there, them there for years. And God says, it's time. It's time to wake up, smell the coffee, and get rid of this stuff. Maybe this is his way of showing you that you need him more than anything else in your life. More than that thing that has its grip on you right now. He's trying to tell you that He, and He alone, is your one and only hope. Maybe you're in the wilderness because God is testing you. Maybe He's molding you. Maybe He's preparing you for a season of ministry that is far bigger, far more significant than you ever imagined. Whatever your wilderness is, know that God is Lord over the wildernesses, and that from the wilderness he causes the hope of Jesus Christ to rise. Will you trust in Jesus in and through the wilderness? Let's pray. Lord, we we thank you, Lord, that the wilderness, the wildernesses and the desert places, the hard places of life are not by accident. Lord, you are Lord of those times. And you use those times and those seasons. Thank you, Lord, that the wilderness, even if it's brought on by your own failure, Lord, doesn't mean that you've given up on us. We look at the life of Mark and we see that there, there was hope for him. Lord, there is hope for us. Help us to trust you. And Lord, we realize that the wildernesses are often those times when you're wanting us to realize our great need to, self, to self-examine To even put ourselves under judgment, Lord, and realize that we need you more than we ever thought we did before. Lord, help us to turn to Jesus, to lay it all down and say, I need Jesus. He's the only one that can help me, that can cleanse me, that can heal me. And Lord, some of us, you're just bringing this wilderness to prepare us to fortify us, to strengthen us, to develop in us those character qualities or maybe even the faith that we need in you to do something that's coming. Whatever the reason, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to look to you. Help us to rely upon you. And as you bring us through those wilderness seasons of life, Lord, we will praise you and glorify you. May our lives be a testimony that you, are bigger than the wilderness. We love you, Lord. Thank you for this time in in your word that we've had. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.